I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the History of Byzantium, episode 111, Abbasid decline. This is the first episode of our end of the century series, and we'll be looking at developments within the caliphate during the ninth century. And there's a very good reason why we're beginning in the East for a change. For Byzantium, the past hundred years tends to be framed as the end of the existential crisis which the rise of Islam had plunged the Romans into. We saw iconoclasm finally put to bed, and since the sack of Amorium in 838, no existence-threatening attacks have taken place. The major reason for this was the decline of the Abbasid Caliphate. For once, it really is that simple. From 650 AD to 850 AD, the biggest fear of the Byzantines was that they would be crushed and conquered by their much larger and more powerful neighbour. The sack of Amorium was yet another humiliating reverse in a war which seemed to have no end. Much to their surprise, then, the Byzantines found across the next few decades that the ferocity of Islamic attacks diminished. Significantly. The forces crossing the border were smaller and easier to deal with. Slowly, cautiously, the Romans began to send their forces out to test the enemy. And what they found was that the soldiers of Baghdad were not coming back to Anatolia. They didn't know if this was going to last, but for now it meant that there was no chance of being crushed and conquered there wasn't even much chance of the Arabs reaching western Anatolia. The dynamics of the relationship had changed. And today's episode answers the question, why? Let's start with the headlines. Our narrative ended in 912 AD with the death of Leo the Wise. On that same day in the east, the Abbasid Caliphate was already much diminished. No longer was it the largest empire in the history of the planet. Instead, it was a central army and administration struggling to control its hinterlands. And by 945, it will all be over. 
Baghdad will be captured by an Iranian army, and no longer will the caliphs have authority over the Muslim world. Yeah, you heard that right. In 30 more years of narrative, the greatest threat the Roman Empire ever faced will have dissolved. It's kind of a shock, right? As recently as 838, the caliphate appeared to be as powerful as ever, certainly strong enough to roll over the Tachmata with ease. But I used the word dissolved rather than, say, collapsed. The caliphate as an empire will disappear, but its constituent parts would go on functioning just fine. The Islamic world will remain a healthy, wealthy place, but instead of power being centralized in Baghdad, it will disperse to the various regions where local commanders will look out for their own interests. So what happened? What pulled the caliphate apart? The answers lie largely in topics we've already covered. Let me remind you of four things you already know. One, the caliphate was huge. Two, its lands were conquered very, very quickly. Three, it was made up of a vast number of different peoples with different interpretations of Islam. And four, Persia survived inside the caliphate. Why were these four things problematic? Okay, so the caliphate was huge. This is an easy one, right? The bigger the empire, the harder it is to keep together. One of the main reasons that the Roman Empire stayed together for so long was the unity provided by the Mediterranean. Travel and communication by sea was far quicker and cheaper than land. Abbasid couriers, by contrast, had to lope across thousands of miles of mountains and deserts. Already last century, we saw Spain slip from the Abbasid orbit, and during the 9th century, those centrifugal forces gathered pace. Future Morocco would part company with their masters around 800, Tunisian Africa would follow suit in the 820s, Egypt would break away in the 860s, as would eastern Iran, Khorasan, as that area was called, and by the 880s, Armenia and Azerbaijan were operating independently too. In part, these breakaways are a reflection of the fact that the caliphate came together very, very quickly. As I mentioned in previous episodes, the speed of the Arab conquests allowed the early caliphs to take a relaxed attitude to taxation. They had wealth beyond anything they could imagine, and volunteers for military service were everywhere so the fact that they weren't receiving all the tax revenue they were owed wasn't a big worry. Over time, though, it became a problem. One of the enduring struggles of the caliphate was getting the provinces to send tax revenue to the centre. Islam was born in an egalitarian spirit, and there were always those who felt money should be shared evenly. The magnificence of the court of Baghdad only encouraged those who felt taxation was merely funding sinful opulence, while regional elites often felt estranged from a government that was hundreds of miles away and didn't reflect their concerns. 
The Abbasids were swept to power by the army of Khorasan, who resented the Syrian elites taking their cash. But of course, once they were in power, the Abbasid caliphs had to send word back to eastern Iran, saying, now you must pay tax to our new Iraqi elite, which was not what they'd fought for. That pull toward independence from the centre was exacerbated by the vast array of different peoples operating under the same banner. The Arabs were now outnumbered by the Iranian peoples of the eastern provinces, not to mention the ex-Romans, Armenians, Kuramites, Turkish nomads and Indians who also lived amongst them, all of whom understood government and religion in different ways. The 9th century was littered with rebellions from a wide variety of these groups. Those Iranian peoples, our former Sasanid Persians, were probably the most damaging source of disunity. I said earlier that Persia survived inside the caliphate, and by that I mean that the territory of the former Sasanid Empire was captured whole, when the caliphate was born. That's a vast area with millions of people in it. The Arabs couldn't overwhelm it and imprint their culture on it as they eventually did in Syria and Egypt. Instead, they needed the local Persians to help them govern, and by inviting them in, they inevitably had to compromise with their culture. That sense of Iranian independence or cultural differentiation fueled the rebellion in Khorasan, which led to the Abbasid takeover. And as I've just hinted, they weren't completely satisfied with the results. So, we have a giant empire with inadequate government structures and a vast array of different peoples who all think they should either be enjoying the spoils of empire or going their own way. Perhaps we should be more impressed that the caliphate stayed together for as long as it did. As you may recall, this cocktail of problems led to the rise of the Abbasids in 750. The army of Khorasan was stirred into action by resentment of the Arabs of Syria. The dynasty of the Umayyads were also resented by the Shiites who felt a descendant of the Prophet should be in charge. Hence the uprising elevated the descendants of Abbas, the Prophet's uncle, to power. Once established though, the Abbasids had to abandon this manifesto. By building their new capital at Baghdad, it was to be the Iraqis, not the men of Khorasan, who would benefit most from the change of regime and the more radical ideas of Shiitism had to be shelved to reassure conservative Sunni opinion. This new, more professional government is the one that was in charge when the last century began. You may remember Nicephorus, the ex-general Logothete, tangling with the sitting caliph Harun al-Rashid. Harun is a celebrated figure, but it was his succession plans which set off another hugely damaging civil war. 
he put one son in charge of Baghdad and another in charge of Khurasan. The latter was supposed to succeed the former to the title of caliph, but once Harun died, the two sons quickly fell out, and a replay of the 750 civil war took place. The elites of Khurasan persuaded al-Mamun to adopt their politics, and his forces emerged victorious from the war which followed. When he became caliph then, he tried to honour the support which they'd showed him. He refused to move to Baghdad and instead made his capital at Merv. He also announced that a descendant of Ali, Muhammad's son-in-law, would succeed him in due course. This was the sort of radical program which the original Abbasids had rejected, and though it was popular in Khurasan, the rest of the caliphate went into revolt and not in support of some other candidate, but into regional factions. The people of Baghdad shut their doors to al-Mamun, the Arabs of Syria rallied around their own leader, Nasser, Egypt fell into a three-way dispute, including the group of Spanish exiles who would soon capture Crete. It took al-Mamun another decade to silence all of this opposition, And you may remember the Byzantines running into some of these groups during the civil war between Michael of Amorium and Thomas the Slav. Once he'd reunited the realm, al-Mamun followed his ancestors' lead. He moved to Baghdad and abandoned his radical policies. During that civil war it had become clear that the resentments of Arabs towards Khurasanis and vice versa made it very difficult to recruit native armies to run the empire. If you promote one group at the expense of another, you risk provoking revolt. And at the same time, the massive Kudamite uprising, which again you know from the narrative, broke out across the mountains of Iran and Iraq. Faced with these problems, al-Mamun and his successor al-Mutasim decided to recruit fresh armies from a new source. Their slaves. Berbers, Armenians and many, many Turkic nomads were captured or purchased and trained to become a loyal imperial army. Many were simply recruited, too, I should point out, but the origin of this movement was in freeing slaves in exchange for their loyal service as soldiers. The Turk horse archers were the most effective troops in this new force, and we saw their frightening power in the narrative when Al-Mutasim swept through Anatolia and sacked Amorium. Having crushed the Kuramites as well, it seemed like the caliphate was back to enjoying its superpower status as 840 rolled around. Al-Mutasim built a new capital, 80 miles north of Baghdad, at Samara, where he and his new army could live. In part, this was a practical move. He wanted to dole out lands to his men, but the real estate around Baghdad was already taken much of it by ex-soldiers who were resentful of these foreign freedmen. Another motive for keeping the army sequestered at Samara was to stop them from integrating. Slaves who had been freed and given power and money were understandably loyal to their masters, 
but it was important to prevent their sons from becoming Iraqis or Khurasanis or Syrians, and perhaps more vitally, from becoming Shiites. The value of the new army was not just in its professionalism, but in its lack of stake in society. The caliphs didn't want the soldiers to put down roots, to develop their own religious or patriotic causes that would lead to a repeat of the civil wars. And for a couple of decades, this isolation seemed to work. But al-Mutasim had unwittingly created a trap for his successors. The caliph had wanted an army that was loyal to him alone, and he got it. But these men had nowhere to go when they lost favor. They didn't have homes to return to. Some of them didn't fully understand Islam or speak Arabic. They didn't need to, living in the cloistered world of Samarra. But as you know, when regimes change, people get fired. Mutasim's son al-Wathiq took over in 842 and naturally wanted men who were primarily loyal to him and not his father. He managed the transition successfully, but already the struggle for government and army positions was becoming vicious. Men knew that to lose their job was to lose everything. Their generals were under huge pressure because they had to deliver pay and privilege to their soldiers or risk being replaced. Al-Wathiq's brother, Al-Mutawakil, became caliph in 847, and it was he who was to drink from the poisoned chalice. A decade of relative peace allowed him to attempt to weaken the hold of the new elite. He recruited non-Turkish troops, and began constructing another new capital to replace Samara. But when he sacked his senior Turkish general in 861, the aggrieved soldiers murdered him. The troops were terrified by the prospect of losing their livelihoods, and so they acted before it was too late. The next decade is known to historians as the Anarchy at Samara. Various Turkish-led army factions set up five different caliphs and murdered three of them. The leaders of the Islamic world had become prisoners of the men they'd set free. By the 870s, the Abbasids had managed to regain control over the army and moved the capital back to Baghdad. But by then... It was too late. Central control had been completely undermined by the events at Samarra. With the army fighting amongst itself, Egypt and Khorasan, the two most important of the outer provinces, declared their independence. Naturally, Khorasan was the first to break away. An uprising there brought the Safarid family to prominence in 867, and they overthrew the forces loyal to the caliph. While down in Egypt, a Turkish officer seized control in 868. Ahmad ibn Tulun extended his reach into Syria and Palestine, and though he was nominally loyal to Baghdad, he forwarded only the tax revenues he felt necessary to pass on. 
the weakening of central control was aided greatly by the increase in conversions to Islam. Down in Egypt, for example, the early Arab conquerors lived in a sea of Christians who they occasionally feared might overwhelm them. Good relations with the capital was important in case help was needed. But by the 860s, a strong elite of Arabized and Islamicized Egyptians were available to staff and arm an independent regime. Back in Iraq, a huge slave uprising further crippled the caliph's authority. Large numbers of African slaves had been brought to the banks of the Tigris and Euphrates to maintain the canals. This irrigation system had made Iraq temporarily richer than Egypt. An amazing achievement, but unlike the stability of the Nile, the rivers of Mesopotamia were wild and unpredictable. The system needed hard labour to keep it functioning. The Zanj, as the Africans were known, rebelled in 869, and it took 14 years to subdue them. The guerrilla warfare in the marshes of southern Iraq was slow and brutal. The 880s, 90s, and the first decade of the 10th century saw a brief revival in Abbasid fortunes. They got hold of the army and were able to claw back some territorial control. But they would never rule Khorasan again, and had to fight to prevent an invasion of Iraq. They were constantly struggling with regional opposition, trying to extract enough revenue just to keep their army in the field. And in a development rich with irony, the political division of Syria from Iraq meant that no one had time to police the Bedouin Arabs who lived in the desert in between. Their chiefs began to see potential in this relaxation of authority, so they began raiding the settled populations on either side of the sand. Though in 912 the Abbasids were holding on, the next 30 years will bring nothing but disaster. In 930, those Bedouin tribes, who caused so much trouble for Justinian and Khusro, will sack Mecca and carry off the Kaaba. And by 945, the Iranian invasion of Iraq will finally succeed, and Baghdad will be captured, ending the line of caliphs who could reasonably claim to be the centre of power in the Muslim world. From the point of view of our narrative, this collapse does feel like a surprise. The caliphate was the giant superpower, and the Byzantines were the ones on the brink not so long ago. But if the expansion of the caliphate brought disunity, the opposite was true for the Romans. The Monophysite provinces were lost, as were those in Italy and the Balkans whose allegiance was to the papacy. What was left of the Roman state was compact, a collection of Greek-speaking Orthodox Christians who all recognized the indispensable position of Constantinople. By contrast, the caliphate was pulled apart by its vastness. Next episode, we'll begin to explore what this means practically 
for the Romans. The Caliphate and its giant armies will soon be a thing of the past, but the smaller states left behind are all militarily active, and many of them are dedicatedly anti-Byzantine. For now, though, I think a couple of analogies are worth bringing up to reflect on the significance of the Caliphate and its decline. An interesting comparison would be with the empire of Alexander the Great. Alexander invaded the giant Achaemenid Persian Empire and conquered it completely. He won three major battles, one in Anatolia, one in Cilicia, one in Iraq. And that's all it took to bring down a giant edifice. Then he just kept on marching into Iran and modern Afghanistan and Pakistan. If you ignore North Africa and Arabia, Alexander's empire covered roughly the same dimensions as the Caliphate. And it was won in a similar manner, just three shocking routes overturned centuries of tradition. The analogy I'm driving toward is what happened to Alexander's empire after his death. It was divided up between his generals and ended up with the constituent pieces which made geographical sense forming into smaller states. Anatolia was its own unit, Egypt had one ruler, and eventually Iran and Iraq would be split apart as well. Each of those regions had its own people with their own traditions and language, and it's difficult to keep them welded together. In the big picture, the caliphate followed a similar path, with politics devolving to the regional level. From our grand historical perspective, it's easy to smile and think, not a lot has changed in the last 1100 years. But the major difference between Alexander's experience and that of the Arabs is that Islam was here to stay. Alexander was able to Hellenize the cities of Anatolia, Syria and Egypt. But beyond that, Iraq, Iran and so on all shrugged off Greek domination fairly quickly. Whereas, even as Persia recovered its independence, it would remain a Muslim state. The caliphs were not despised, they were not hated oppressors who were overthrown, it was just that their right to govern and dictate religious issues was undermined and superseded. Islam's ability to embrace so many disparate peoples in town and countryside alike is the most impressive legacy of the caliphate. In fact, its success is partly responsible for the devolution of power. As I mentioned with the example of Egypt, the early Muslims needed one another, lest they be overwhelmed by their subjects. But 200 years later, local Syrians and Khorasanis were growing up in a Muslim world where Islamic civilization was the concern of the majority. They wanted a piece of the action. They wanted power and wealth in their local government. They couldn't see the need to send all the rewards of their rule onto distant alien regimes. The community of believers was strong enough to survive without a central governing body. To use another analogy then, this breakup was a little bit like the three-way split Rome went into during the crisis of the 3rd century, where the Palmyrian and Gallic empires briefly held sway in East and West respectively. Mike Duncan commented then that these breakaway governments did not reject 
the Roman way of life. They were simply formed to protect local interests. And such was the case within the caliphate. The states which emerged all promoted a similar form of government to the one they'd just escaped, often complete with a foreign ex-slave army to protect them from their neighbours. These developments are all vital to understand for the Byzantine story. This is the number one reason that the Romans were able to recover. Without the decline of the caliphate, the next century of growth would not have been possible. But of course, no one in Constantinople in 912 AD understood that the caliphate was in real trouble. News of their problems trickled in, but the Romans had been bitten before. They knew better than to assume that this decline was permanent. Besides, the Arabs of Sicily, Crete, Tarsus and Melitene were still raiding annually. It would be a long while before it dawned on anyone that beyond the frontier, something truly momentous had happened. Before I go, I have a couple of things to plug. I was interviewed on the Glenn and Dean show a while ago now. Thank you for your patience. A, uh, the Glenn and Dean show is a very entertaining talk show style podcast, which you can find on iTunes or at glennanddean.com. And we talked about Byzantium and podcasting and American TV shows. So go check it out and try out some of their other episodes. And for those of you interested in historical board games, go look at the Kickstarter for Swords and Sails, a game based in the year 1000, with enough attention to detail and complexity to tickle any gamer's sweet spot. Not to mention realistic Byzantine coins. Swords and Sails Kickstarter. Go have a look. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 